This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I know it's just a little chant that Christians sometimes do. Uh, if you don't know it, you can learn it today. Uh, but there's no insiders club here. We like to sometimes say like, oh, if we know the thing, we, we, we know we're, we're really part of the club. Um, but it's just something that we say to acknowledge what we celebrate on this day. This is Easter. And on Easter, we celebrate that Jesus rose from the grave. And this morning, uh, my, my wife and kids and I uh, had the pleasure of joining some other English-speaking churches in the San Juan area for a sunrise service at El Morro. And when we told Joaquin, my four-year-old, that we're going to be going to celebrate Jesus' resurrection at El Morro, he said, is Jesus coming to Puerto Rico? <laughs> and of course, that's beautiful. And all of our hearts break a little bit because we're like, yes, that's what we want. If you're new to Christianity, uh, maybe this, this sounds weird to you, but what we want is Jesus to come back to Puerto Rico, to the whole world. Because we believe that when he comes back, he will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear. He will resurrect the dead from the grave. He will transform our bodies into bodies like his that will last forever. And his kingdom will finally fully come. Everything will be made right. But Christians have been celebrating Easter, this resurrection, this day that we've been waiting for for 2,000 years almost. And we're still waiting for this kingdom to come. We've been waiting for a really long time. And although we might be fully convinced uh, that Jesus did in fact raise from the dead, I think all of us struggle a little bit wondering, what does this resurrection have to do with me right now? Of course, it's going to have significant implications for me when he returns, when he comes back to Puerto Rico. But does his resurrection from the grave impact me today? And how might it do so? To answer that question, we're actually going to go back to the Old Testament. Maybe it's a little weird uh, to preach on Easter Sunday from the Old Testament, but I think that this passage helps identify for us three ways in which Christ's resurrection, his fulfillment of this Old Testament passage, Christ's resurrection gives us resurrection hope today, resurrection power today to live our lives. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This comes from Isaiah chapter 25, starting in verse 6. <clears throat> Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, and straw, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. 
and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless him for you and for me. Please be seated. So we're trying to wrap our heads around what sort of implications the resurrection is supposed to have for us today, here, and now. And there's three things I think we can learn from this passage about uh, how Christ's resurrection from the dead gives us true resurrection hope and changes the way that we live our lives now. And it has to do with contentment, courage, and confidence. These are going to be our three points today for you note takers. Contentment, courage, and confidence. And the first is contentment. Um, You know, work is generally something that we want to find fulfilling, right? We want our jobs to be fulfilling. And we start instilling this in our children at a very young age. If you remember, you were asked all growing up, what do you want to be when you grow up? And through middle school and high school, you started training and exercising to, uh, and applying to those programs in schools uh, or, or uh, thinking about those jobs that you wanted to do to, to figure out how you might make those transitions. And when you graduated from college or made the transition into the workplace, you tried to start climbing that corporate ladder or move up to the positions to do that, which you wanted to do. We wanted to find some fulfillment out of these things. But if you've been working for any amount of time at all, how fulfilling is it really? One of the wisest persons I've ever met and, almost, and also one of the most godly, he was a, a professor of mine in seminary, he said this to a room full of someday pastors. He would say, one of the best pastoral positions that you can hope for is that it's fulfilling 60% of the time and that it is soul-sucking the other 40%. And he clarified that this is an average, which means sometimes you're going to feel like you have the best job in the world. If you're really lucky, you might even get to 80% fulfilling and 20% things you don't really want to do. But that also means the reverse. Sometimes there's going to be 20% fulfilling and 80% things you don't want to do. I would argue that this isn't just a phenomenon that pastors experience, but all of us experience in all of our lives, in our jobs, in our callings that God has called us to live out. And if you're like me, you might take this bit of wisdom that he shared with me uh, to steel yourself, to kind of make yourself a little bit stronger, to kind of deaden yourself to the lows, right? Because it's the lows that are dangerous. You don't want to like quit a job partway through if you know that it might eventually level out to be 60-40, Use this information to deaden yourself to the lows, but inadvertently, you also deaden yourself to the highs. So I may be able to protect myself from the lows of my job, but I also refuse to allow myself to experience the highs of my job. Don't get too excited. This won't last forever. Sometimes I think we describe this as contentment, when really I think this is self-resignation. Here's the definition of resignation. The definition of this is to accept things that are bad and that we cannot change them. So we lower our expectations. You know, there's, I don't know if it's just a Midwestern thing, um, but, but one of these things that has existed in uh, my mind for a while, and I don't remember anyone ever teaching it to me, uh, and, but I'm sure it came from somewhere. Um, if you never get your hopes up, you'll never be disappointed. Did any of you kind of live life that way? I think sometimes we tend to think that that's actually a very Christian viewpoint. I find myself talking this way sometimes. I'll say that because work is cursed by God, because it was, because it's actually God who cursed your job, occupation, or calling, it will never 100% satisfy you, which I also believe is true. But if I stop the conversation there, I've cut the gospel short. 
Your job will never 100% satisfy you because your job was never meant to 100% satisfy you. The only thing that was meant to 100% satisfy you is a right relationship with God. Now, our passage today doesn't talk about this in terms of work. It talks about this in terms of food, which I think we can also intimately understand. Even the best three Michelin star restaurants will never permanently satisfy your hunger, although in the moment it may be a really beautiful meal. Because food on its own was never meant to 100% satisfy you. Look at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. I think at first glance, we read this and we're like, well, it's just going to be the best food ever. That's why it's going to be satisfying. But actually, in the context of the whole passage in the book of Isaiah, it's not really the food, although I'm sure the quality of God's food is going to be the best that we've ever had. It's actually the quality of the relationship. It's the one who set the table and invited you, that you have a seat at the table. And because you have a seat at the table, you are content with the food. We know that God is making a feast that will really and truly satisfy, not because the food itself is of such higher quality, but because the relationship is of such higher quality. And you'd say, okay, Zach, this is great. You're talking about food and work, but like, I know there's a feast coming at the end. If I, if I think of Revelation, I know that there's the, the wedding feast and I'm looking forward to that day, but it's still in the future. I'm not experiencing that now. I don't experience the fullness of this relationship right now. Right now, I still go to work. And I have to work until Jesus comes back. And Jesus probably doesn't care very little about what kind of work I do or how I go about doing it. It's just something I do in these dark gray days until there's light. Because there's a feast that the resurrected Lord has given us now, there is a declaration of a greater and truer reality that changes everything about our here and now. I mentioned that the table uh, is set by the Lord himself. And that it is not the quality of the food itself, but the relationship that it signifies that it matters. And Jesus gave us that table here and now. And we celebrate it every Sunday together. And I'm going to be honest with you, the quality of it is not quite what's described in this passage. But it's not the quality of the food that matters, it's the relationship that it signifies. Because his body is broken for you, because his blood is shed for you, everything that you now do in your life matters. Everything that you now do in your life can now be enjoyed truthfully, not because you're trying to make an end of it in and of itself, but because you are already satisfied with the true relationship that is meant to satisfy you. You can now enjoy your work, whether it's 60%, 80%, or 20%. Whether it's the best food you've ever had in your entire life, or whether it is you know, a small piece of bread and a little thimble of wine. Whenever we come together, we can say, God gave me these good gifts. He has satisfied everything that I need. And so I can have contentment in this world. And I think this has profound implications for us. Because I think sometimes, you know, we feel guilty enjoying good things. Um, and we wonder whether or not we could have done something else. And maybe there's an appropriate place of reflection in your own heart uh, for uh, how you spend your money in this world, whether you just spend it on yourself or for others. And yet at the same time, I think that Jesus could find contentment wherever he was. 
If you were to read through his story in the Gospels, whether he was at a fine party thrown by a very wealthy Pharisee or whether he is uh, breaking bread with the lowest of the disciples, Jesus is satisfied with the relationship that he has. And so whatever bread or food comes across his plate, he gives thanks to God in true and right contentment. So our first point is that the resurrection gives us contentment here and now. Uh, And if the resurrected Lord is not the satisfying relationship that is guiding your life, you'll never truly be able to find this contentment. You'll always be trying to fill that hole with something else. Vacations, work, family, food, hotels, cars, whatever else you want to stuff in there, you can probably name it. You know what it is in your own heart. But the resurrected Lord is the one who brings true satisfaction so that we might find contentment in the rest of our lives. But you know, it's not really the good gifts uh, that we struggle to apply the resurrection to on this side of heaven. It's really the pain. Does the resurrection really say anything about death, suffering, the loss of loved ones? You know, a couple weeks ago at the Covenant School in Nashville, three children and three adults were murdered. This school is a ministry of a sister church of ours in our denomination. One of the children killed was the senior pastor's daughter. She, and along with two others, were nine years old. I imagine at this moment, reading through this passage and talking about the resurrection, it sounds a little hollow. The pain is still too real. What does the resurrection have to say about that? Some of you have also experienced immense suffering, immense pain. And honestly, I'm amazed that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you've continued to hope in the resurrection. Because I think that sometimes you probably feel like Job. Here's what it says in Job chapter 30. When I hoped for good, evil came. When I waited for light, darkness came. When we hope in the resurrection, are we bound to find evil? As we wait for the light of the resurrection, are we bound to only wait in darkness? As Christians, we know that this evil and darkness is a result of sin. Adam and Eve, when they first took the fruit, in the day that they ate of the fruit, would know something that they had never known, evil and death. And God would have to remove them from the garden, not because he was ashamed or embarrassed by them, but because his holiness might consume them. And he put an angel there to guard the garden so that nobody could find it. And the rest of Scripture is going to talk about this like a veil. God covered humanity with a veil so that they could not be exposed. They would be separated from God's holiness, lest his holiness consume the evil and darkness that they brought into the world and consume them. This is the same imagery that is at play in the temple. I can't get into all of the temple pieces today, but there's this place in the innermost part of the temple. It's called the Holy of Holies, and it's separated by a thick curtain, and no one can go in because it's supposed to signify the presence of God himself except one priest once a year. And he had to go through extensive rituals to clean himself ritually uh, to make sure that he did not bring anything impure into the presence of God. And in fact, he had to wear like bells on his body. And then they had to tie a rope around his foot so that if he forgot to do something or failed to confess some sin or something, and God's holiness consumed him in the Holy of Holies, that the people outside of the curtain could hear him fall and then drag his body back out without having to go to get him. The veil that separates heavenly holiness from our humanity is thick and impenetrable and serious. 
And it signifies the seriousness of man's rebellion. We just cannot get to God. But do you know what happened on Good Friday? If you were here, we read this passage. It says that this curtain in the Holy of Holies, this veil, was torn in two from top to bottom. That's significant for a number of reasons. It's not like a man ran up and tore it open and said, see, God's not there. But actually, this curtain being so tall, it is it's to signify that God stooped down and he tore it because he saw the sacrifice that was sufficient to remove the veil. God tore it from top to bottom and says, my presence is now with you. So how does this give us courage in the face of of death that we still experience. Well, it's almost as if we see verse 7 fulfilled, but we're still waiting on verse 8. See, verse 7 says this, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And this is what Jesus did on Good Friday. He removed that veil that separated God and man. He paid the price necessary to wind back the clocks of time and restore relationship with God himself. So much so that God's holy presence would not be contained only to the holy of holies, to one specific place, but it now would say that his Holy Spirit would dwell in you. We'll come back to that in a second, but we're still waiting on verse 8. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, I'm sorry, verse 8, we, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all of the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have no idea what sort of suffering you've, se- you've seen because of the sin in this world. I have no idea how far away God has felt in those moments, but what I do know is this is that God is no longer far away. He is not separated behind a curtain that you cannot go into. He has come to you. He's removed that veil that has existed for all of humanity. He is the one that has spoken, one day I will wipe away all of your tears. I am able to make you whole. I am able to take away your reproach for I am the Lord and I have spoken. Jesus not only gave us an inbreaking of the resurrection here at this table, he also gave us his Holy Spirit, God himself in our very bodies that now become his temple. So instead of a priest having to sanctify himself once a year to go into God's presence, God's presence now comes into you, sanctifying you day by day to be the image of God himself. What humanity was always created to be, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. What does this mean again for the death and the pain that we experience in this world? When Jesus tore the veil, God's breath and spirit once again entered human lives, and it means that he is with you in your deepest pain. He is angry with that injustice. He never leaves or forsakes you, and he promises you with his word that he will wipe away every tear. Now, I've already kind of touched on it here. Um, Jesus' resurrection gives us hope, uh, not only because the table reorients our entire life, and not only because the Holy Spirit comes in to sanctify us from the inside out, gives us courage uh, to live in the face of of, uh, a broken world, 
But we also need confidence in the midst of our waiting. Because again, like I said, it's been 2,000 years. Are these promises still good? How can we know? It's been a long time. We've been waiting a long time. You know, uh, Harrison and I were speaking earlier this week, uh, and Harrison said, you know, I, I find myself increasingly praying, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. God's timeline looks quite a bit different than our own. And just for reference, I'd like to actually examine what the Israelites were going, in, going through in this very passage. Because when Isaiah was writing this, I, I want to give you some context of what was happening. When Isaiah was writing it, the northern kingdom was being captured by the Assyrians. So God's kingdom, as Israel was supposed to be known to be, was being dismantled before their very eyes. They were losing the war. And in fact, they would lose the war with the Assyrians, but the southern kingdom would still keep a remnant over there until the Babylonians would show up. And this is what would happen with the Babylonians. They would have to read this passage a hundred years later when this happened. So when the Babylonians came, a hundred years have passed. The Babylonians would show up and they would capture the last king of Israel. His name was Zedekiah. And what they would do is that they would sit him down and then they murdered his three sons in front of him and then gouged out his eyes so that the last thing that he saw was arguably one of the most horrific things he could have ever experienced. Now imagine being Zedekiah holed up in some prison for the years that they were captured by the Babylonians, hearing God's word read time and time again and then hearing this verse. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I imagine that although Zedekiah may have believed that the veil and the curtain oppressing humanity would one day be lifted, although he, he believed in his God and the words of this passage that there would one day be salvation, I imagine that at that moment it felt pretty hollow. Nowhere near the promised land, no king reigning, veil still in place. Zedekiah in his grief had hope, but far less hope than we have. We are waiting on the Lord's full salvation. And we're waiting in grief and sadness and confusing things that we can't explain and unbelievable pain and things that we are put through uh, that we can't make sense of, maybe just like Zedekiah. But I wonder if you heard these words from 1 Thessalonians 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And if you were to read 1 Thessalonians, you would see that that, that word asleep means dead. That's what he's talking about. We, don't, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. You know what's interesting about this verse? Is that he is writing this letter to a bunch of people who are waiting, when will it come? People are still dying. We are still suffering. It seemed that Jesus was coming back quickly, and yet it has been years at this point. And in this verse, you know what he tells them to do? Grieve with hope. We as Christians are able to grieve the pain of this world in a way that does not lead to despair. Jesus 
could grieve the pain of this world. Jesus would weep at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And if you know this story, Jesus never despaired. But Jesus in that story spoke. And he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus resurrected from the dead after three whole days. Lazarus' sisters thought it was impossible that too much time had passed. But whether it is three days, 2,000 years, or 10,000 years, no amount of time will stop the voice of the Lord himself who speaks, I am the resurrection and the life. We have confidence and hope in the midst of our grief because Jesus himself isn't dead, but is watching. You know, he said that he didn't know the day or the hour that he would come, but only the Father in heaven. And you could almost imagine Jesus up in heaven waiting, asking his Father, is it time yet? Is it time yet? And we might wonder, well, why is God the Father delaying? And it says elsewhere in Scripture that the Lord is delaying so that many more might come to faith, so that Jesus' glory might be increased all the more. In our grief in this time, we are not grieving as those without hope, but those with the unbelievable hope that the resurrected one is watching and sees. Now, waiting on the Lord has never been easy. It wasn't easy for the Israelites. It wasn't easy for the disciples. And it isn't easy for us. But we wait as those with hope. Those who grieve with a real grief. A real grief that doesn't end in despair because we know that on the mountain of the Lord, the resurrected one stands and declares, my salvation is at hand. The hope that Christians have in the resurrection is not a simplistic, stoic, detached, or future-only hope. The hope that Christians have in the resurrection informs every single thing that they do whether they are thanking God for their good blessings, whether they are in sorrow and grief, and whether they are holding on by the power of the Holy Spirit to the hope that the Lord watches and sees. Jesus' resurrection, the fact that the tomb is empty, gives us every ounce of hope that we need to live in this world. And without it, like Paul says elsewhere, we are the most to be pitied. So as you today reflect on the reality of the resurrection, I, I pray that you would be able to find uh, courage and confidence and hope in what the Lord has done for us. And that you would not leave this as just a future reality that we're waiting to experience, but that as you come to this table, that you would be able to taste his resurrected body on your lips. And you'd be able to see that he created a place for you at his table. That he desires that right now your entire life would serve him from the inside out. That he is with you in your deepest griefs and sorrows that he is not blind to the pain of this world, but will come again to make all things new. Now, I mentioned earlier that this table was given by the Lord and that it was set by the Lord himself. And he commanded us to celebrate this table as often as we gather together because this table actually is spiritual nourishment for us. This table is what helps reorient our entire weeks to say that whatever we do in our lives can be done unto his kingdom, unto his glory, unto service of him, not simply to ourselves. Now, it is a simple meal, as I mentioned, a little piece of bread, 
in a little cup of wine or grape juice. But it isn't the quality of the elements that determines the quality of the relationship. Jesus gave his body and blood for you. The veil has been removed. His Holy Spirit indwells you. You are not alone. The night that Jesus was betrayed, when his disciples rejected him, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering his name and I'll give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. If you've been united to Jesus' body and blood and baptism and are a member in good standing of his church, then you are welcome to this table. That's why uh, we say that it is not my table, it's not Zach's table, it's not uh, the table of Trinity Church or our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. It belongs to Jesus Christ himself, and it is open to all who are his. But if you are not his, if you've not been baptized and united uh, to his life story uh, through his death and resurrection, uh, we would uh, warn you, just like Jesus does in the Word, to not partake of these elements, to not declare something with your outward actions that is not an inward reality. Because he says that it's dangerous for you, that these spiritual realities actually have spiritual significance to nourish us and reform our thinking about how we live and operate in this world. That being said, if you don't partake of this meal, we don't want you to leave. Please make use of the prayer in your bulletin. And if you've got any questions about what I've said, please contact me. My contact information is in the bulletin there or, or grab me after. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to pray. Uh, and then we can come down the center aisle and go to these uh, serving stations. There's one over here and one here as well. Uh, Gluten-free is at that station over there. So if you require that, you're going to want to head that way and notify your server that you require that. And then there is red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Father, you have set this table. Jesus, you have furnished it with your very body and blood, the very relationship which will truly satisfy us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would nourish our faith with these common elements, that our lives might be transformed, that we who partake this morning might find true contentment, true courage, and true confidence in the power of your resurrection. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.